We hear another word of the Lord from Psalm 101. This is a Psalm of David. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, A few years ago, several years ago, um, I was trying to get into exercise, weightlifting to be specific. And so the thing that nerds do when they want to get into exercise is they read a book about it. And so I read a book about strength training. And one of the more interesting principles I learned was a basic principle of strength training uh, that you don't build strength sort of at the the far reaches, the periphery of how far you can reach. You you really, uh, when you're building strength, uh, you want to go straight up and down in the motions that you were doing and really work from the inside out. So to give you an an illustration that helped me from from the book, um, it it showed an illustration of a football player throwing a block. And if you think about uh, wanting to have a lot of power and force and energy um, at the periphery of your reach, think about someone, uh, a football player, trying to block another massive human being. That requires you to reach out and stretch as far as as you can. But in order to train to be able to block really well, uh, you can't sort of do these exercises where you're bent over and reaching out and trying to stretch and, and do exercises at the periphery of your strength. What you instead do is you work from the inside out. Uh, you do squats where you're, you're squatting straight up and down and trying to lift more and more weight so that you uh, develop a power and explosiveness in and, and your posterior chain to be able to explode upward. That's their words, not mine. Um, and then you also uh, do lie down and do the kind of bench presses where you're able to uh, increasingly, again, straight up and down, not to the side or twisting, trying to work to the periphery of your reach, uh, going straight up and down to, to, to develop force outward. And together, when you're able to explode upward and explode outward, you're able to stretch out. By training from the inside out, you're able to reach some of the problems at the far end of your reach. You're able to get stronger to, to be able to block those giant human beings if, if that happens to be the sport of your choosing. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. You know, when we think about all of the, the problems we face in life, a lot of times we think about the problems at the far end of our reach, the far end of our circles of influence, the problems that are out there. And I see this one and that one and this one. and that. I'm not pointing to you. But you, you see these ones uh, that you see these problems that we have and we want to deal with them, right? Well, what the Bible says is that instead of trying to think initially about working outward and then if I could just solve all the problems out there, my life would be considerably better. The Bible says we actually have to start 
from the inside out. We have to start with our own heart, with our own household, and work our way out. And and far from uh, being ineffectual at dealing with the outer things, if we're first dealing with our inward souls, we actually become stronger and more effective for dealing with the outward problems if we first take heed to our own souls. Now, in Psalm 101, this is what David is getting at. And this is a striking psalm as we read about it, because David's talking about all these external problems he has, these evildoers that he has to destroy. Now, we have to sort of read this in in two lenses. We have to think about our own lives and how this applies to us, but we also have to recognize that David is a king, and he's talking about what it would look like for a true king to establish justice, not just in his own personal private life, not just in his immediate household, not just in his immediate circles of influence, uh, but to the far reaches of the kingdom of God. And that's what's in view here. And what we're going to see is this starts from the inside out. Our big idea today is that the judgment of King Jesus begins in the household of God. The judgment of King Jesus begins in the household of God. Jesus wants us to begin our thinking about what the the righteousness of his kingdom uh, looks like, beginning with our own lives and our own households. So three parts to our, our sermon tonight. First of all, righteousness in my character. Righteousness in my character in the first two verses of Psalm 101. Then second, righteousness in my companions. Righteousness in my companions. And then third, righteousness in my circles of influence. Righteousness in my circles of influence. And you can see how those are uh, uh, steadily progressing outward circle, concentric circles there. So let's start in our core. Righteousness in my character in verses 1 and 2. What David tells us here is that righteousness must start at home. And more than that, righteousness must start in our own souls. And so he starts off with three uh, what grammarians would call cohortatives. Now, you're not going to be tested on that, but but it's an important word because it's this idea of of, of pledging or exhorting the self. Let me do this. I will do this. It's a very strong way to make a statement. It's not just, oh, I might do this. It's a very strong way of exhorting oneself to do this thing. And so David has three of these. He first says, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. And then he says, to you, O Lord, I will make music. I'm going to sing of the steadfast love and justice, and to you, O Lord, I will make music. He's starting here upon, and again, we have to remember, this is a psalm for a king dealing with his kingdom. He has lots of problems to deal with, but it begins with where he must start, with personal private worship. He begins with singing. And especially he would sing about the things that his kingdom should be about, steadfast love and justice, with an orientation to you, O Lord, I will make music. Why does David have to sing this? Because by singing things, we learn to treasure them. By singing about steadfast love and justice, we learn to treasure them in the depths of our souls. This is why we must sing the gospel. This is why we must sing the word of God so that we grow to treasure it. So that we're not just thinking these thoughts, but in the depths of our souls, we treasure the fact that God Almighty and the second person of the Trinity came into this world as a man and suffered for us and died so that we could be purified and cleansed and made accounted righteous through Christ by faith in Him alone. This is the gospel that we should treasure, and that is why we sing it. 
And so David starts here. He doesn't, again, start with all of these problems that he has to deal with, everything on his agenda as king. He starts by exhorting himself to sing. Well, then he goes on, and he has one more of these cohortative, these urging himself to do words. He says, I will ponder the way that is blameless. This is a wisdom word. Um, It's a wisdom word that's particularly characterized by the idea of, of trying to identify the path that will lead to success. And David is pondering this. Now, it's interesting if you have different translations, if some of you may have the the King James Version. It's not ponder, but rather behave myself wisely. Translations are divided as to whether this is a word that has to do with uh, thinking or whether this is a word that has to do with some kind of wise behavior. And the reason for this is because this word encapsulates both ideas. And again, it's the kind of pondering, the kind of thinking that's, that's designed to lead in the ways that lead to success. And what David says, the way that is blameless is that kind of wise way of living. I am going to ponder this. He's singing of steadfast love and justice. He's pondering the way that is blameless. And then he turns in a prayer. Oh, when will you come to me? He's acknowledging his dependence upon the Lord. He's acknowledging his absolute reliance upon the Lord. Everything he does is nothing if the Lord is not with him to establish his kingdom, to establish even the the steps of his own life. And so he goes on and he says, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. Now this word for walk here is a word that's It's a form of the word walk that's not often used in the Old Testament, but when it's used, you pay attention. Because this idea of of walking to sort of exert dominion over your own territory, this is the word where we read that that the Lord was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The Lord was coming in judgment. He was exerting dominion over his Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had first sinned. This is the word that God tells Abraham to walk through the land of Canaan in Genesis 13, verse 17. In other words, even before Abraham had taken possession of the land of Canaan, he was to exercise his dominion over it. In Leviticus 26, verse 12, God says that he will walk in this special way in his tabernacle in the midst of his people, exercising dominion in their midst. And in Joshua 18, verse 8, when the Israelites go in to take their promised land, or the promised land, the land of their inheritance, they they walk through it in order to claim it for themselves. And so David is saying, I will walk, I will exert this sort of dominion and walk in the integrity of heart within my house. His kingdom is not established on brute force and might and power to bowl over his enemies. His kingdom will be established as he depends upon the Lord and looks with integrity of, of heart to the ways, the blameless ways that the Lord has established for him to walk in. Now, this psalm is a psalm that, again, focuses, first of all, on the closest part of our lives. It starts with our own hearts, and then it expands just a little bit to the most immediate next concentric circle, from the heart to the household. Spurgeon writes this, uh, Charles Spurgeon, a great uh, uh, British Baptist preacher in the 19th century, he says, piety must begin at home. Our first duties are those within our own abode. We must have a perfect heart at home or we cannot keep a perfect way abroad. Reader, how fares it with your family? Do you sing in the choir and sin in the chamber? Are you a saint abroad and a devil at home? For shame. What we are at home, that we are indeed. He cannot be a good king whose palace is the haunt of vice, nor he a true saint whose habitation is a scene of strife, 
nor he a faithful minister whose household dreads his appearance at the fireside. Now, very sadly, if you know the story of David, you know that his story, his life, illustrates this principle in a negative way, not a positive way. You know that David became careless and reckless later in his life, in his personal life, and that led to an affair with Bathsheba. And from that carelessness, there was a curse that was put on his house. And the prophecy that was given to the prophet Nathan was that the sword will never depart from your house because of this. And that's exactly what happened. One of his sons, Amnon, raped one of his daughters, Tamar. And then another son, Absalom, murdered that first son, Amnon. And then eventually Absalom raised up a a, a coup against David, his father, to try to take the kingdom by force. Eventually that coup was put down. Absalom was killed. But later on in life, when David had grown a few more years and had become weak and frail in his old age, the first thing we read in the book of 1 Kings is that, a, is that there's a question of succession. David's hand-picked successor, the one that the Lord had chosen was Solomon, but another one of David's sons, Adonijah, tried to claim the throne for himself, and that had to be dealt with. But after Adonijah was out of the way and Solomon was established in his throne and Solomon grew in, in wisdom and in, in riches and in splendor, eventually Solomon himself apostatized. What David is laying out here is a vision that he does not realize for his own life. He was an extraordinary king in so many ways. But the deepest failures of his life arose from his personal carelessness, especially in his household. True piety must begin in the inner man, from the heart and then into the household. We cannot first be concerned with the things out there, but we have to start with the things in here. But at the same time, this does not consign us to endless navel-gazing. Well, I just need to mind my own business. It isn't an either-or. It's a first and then. First the self and the household. Then, secondly, we go to the next concentric circle, the concentric circle of our companions. So in the second section, David addresses the need for righteousness among his companions, those who are closest to him. He says in verse 3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Now, we're not talking about people yet. We're talking about things that we uh, read, things that we listen to, things that we watch, uh, influences in our life. And David says, I'm, I'm not going to send my eyes before my eyes anything that is at all worthless. But then in the next part of verse 3, he talks about the greatest influences in his life, his companions. And he says, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, bad company corrupts good character. We cannot live well if our closest influences are at the same time moving away from Jesus. Uh, Young people, one of the things that we always tell our children, my wife and I, is that you must date and eventually marry only those people who love Jesus more than they love you. That's essential. We cannot be unequally yoked, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 with some kind of romantic partnership with an unbeliever or someone who is not closely following after Jesus because eventually what's happening in their life will serve to corrupt our own life. Now, someone might object, well, Jesus spent time with sinners and tax collectors. Maybe you've been paying attention in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and I'd say that's true. However, first of all, you are not Jesus. Our Lord was incorruptible in a way that we are not. He had no sin in him. He was like us in every respect, yet without sin. And what 
could not be drawn out of him because it did not exist, namely sin, can very quickly be drawn out of us. There is sin in our hearts. Bad company will corrupt good character. But the second response to this is that even Jesus, although we do read about him spending time with sinners and tax collectors, even Jesus spent the vast majority of his time not even with the crowds, but with his disciples. He spent the vast majority of time with people who were sincere and earnest about following after the Lord. Now, certainly they had their flaws, their foibles. They made all kinds of mistakes, especially my favorite apostle, Peter. But they were serious. They wanted to follow the Lord. So demanding righteousness from your companions doesn't eliminate contact with the unrighteous, but it does give you pause about the extent to which they should exert influence over you. I look back in two stages of my own life and see where I've done this well and where I've done this poorly. When I was in middle school, um, uh, it was a time where I was growing in my faith. Um, but I remember when I started hanging around with a group of friends who were not Christians. I say all this not to blame them for what was my own sin. I say this simply to say that this is true. This is important. Take heed of this. I remember I believed at the time that I could influence them, but over time it became very clear that they were influencing me far more than I was influencing them. And even when I tried to share the gospel with them, the, the fact of the matter is I was just too close. My life had conformed to their lives in ways where I was no longer really that much of salt or that much of light among them. And so my, compromise, or my, my witness was compromised among them. Ultimately, in my own heart, that sowed the seeds that led to a time of pretty intense rebellion in my own life, where I remember very vividly thinking to myself, I believe that Christianity is true, but I just want nothing to do with it. I saw the freedom that my friends had, and I wanted that. It seemed so much fun. And what I realized is that through, eventually, that through what they were doing in front of me and what was happening all around me, that my good character, however good it was at the time, was being severely corrupted. And again, I don't say that to blame them. I say that saying I should have known better. And I learned a lot from that mistake. And what David is saying here is that this is something that we need to be evaluating among the company that we keep. But then I think to a second time in my life in college, where I was surrounded by people who loved the Lord. This was a time that was intensely transformative in my life. Sometimes because there were people in my life who directly challenged me. I'd tell them things that I was doing, and I had uh, particularly one older man in my life who would call me on the carpet and say, you can't do that. What are you doing? And he would tell me and co uh, co confront me and convict me of my sin, and I needed that. But it was also just the general environment. Just being around people who were loving the Lord and desiring the Lord created an atmosphere that didn't hinder my progress in the faith that cultivated, it created an environment where my love for Jesus could grow. The company that we keep matters. But remember, this is a psalm about David's righteous reign as king, and this certainly applies directly to our own lives. We've got to keep these two lenses, these two views on this passage in mind. As we move into the next section, we have to remember this is a king talking about the righteousness of the kingdom. This isn't about how to sort of wage a holy law, war in your own personal life. So in this final section, we see the righteousness of the reign, not only of David, but the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, expanding to the far corners of the earth. 
Here we see what David says about what a righteous king does. Ultimately, as the righteous king first deals with himself in his heart and in his household and then in his companions, now we see the way that a king, a true king, seeks righteousness in my circles of influence. In verses 5 through 8. In verse 5, David says, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Now again, that doesn't give you the right to destroy your neighbor who you think might be talking behind your back. Uh, this is the work of a king, but it's so serious because slander can so quickly destroy communities, homes, families, churches. Slander is a really big deal, and David wants none of it in his kingdom. And then he says, whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. But again, he's not talking about vigilante justice. This is the justice that a righteous king will establish in his kingdom. But then in verse 6, he says, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. David's reign is not limited to punishing the wicked. He also wants to bless the righteous. And notice the, the privilege of dwelling with the king, of ministering to the king. Again, this isn't that you can sort of uh, bring among a bunch of minions around you to do your dirty work. Uh, the idea here is the, the privilege of being promoted as a servant to a king in the kingdom of God. And then in verse 7, David writes, No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Notice where David begins, as starting in his own house. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. And then he works out to those farther concentric circles that morning by morning he will destroy the wicked in all the land. Eventually, he has to deal with those problems on the periphery, at the far end of his reach, but it starts with his home, his heart, his household, and then moves out from there. How we live privately affects our public effectiveness. But remember also that our public effectiveness will depend on our public or private piety. But tonight, we have to ask, if we're not the king, if, and none of us are, if we are not King David or a greater son of David, and again, none of us are, then how do we apply Psalm 101 to our lives? Well, I think it's important to remember how this psalm began. The psalm began with a word of worship. I will sing. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. This began on a note of worship. And so tonight, as we think about these expanding concentric circles in our lives, tonight I want to apply this by thinking how this applies to the expanding concentric circles of worship at every level, at every uh, expanding concentric circle of our lives and every relationship uh, that we have. Notice that all of this begins with a sense of private worship. Piety, holiness starts personally. It doesn't start worrying so much about what's out there. It starts with a deep concern about what is in here. And I think at the beginning of the year, it's always a really good time to evaluate what is my private worship like? Am I doing it at all? If I'm doing it, am I just going through the motions? Or is my private worship marked by daily pondering the way that is blameless? by daily waiting upon God to come to us by His Spirit. I mentioned this before, but it's worthy of mentioning again. Uh, when David prays here, oh, when will you come to me? That's a good prayer. Um, 
Because when we start our time of devotion, just as we start by a praying that God would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand here when we're in public worship, how much more do we need that when we're in private? When we're opening the Word of God, we're not just doing our Bible reading and chugging through it. We are asking for God's Spirit to help us to see what's contained in the Gospel of Jesus. Are you daily singing and making music to Him to treasure His truth? In private worship, we need to be spending time every day in the Word, in prayer, and if possible, in singing. Again, not something we do to check off a box. This is our life. This is our vitality. Everything begins here. We don't start with trying to deal with things at the periphery. We must start in the heart. Ask Him to meet you there. And if you don't feel like worship, well, ask Him to stir your heart so that you do feel like worship. Don't just give it up for the day. Meet with Him. Wrestle with Him. Like Jacob before the dawn when he wrestled with, with God. Wrestle with Him. Ask Him to stir your heart. So what is your plan for private worship this year? If you don't have a plan, come talk to me. I would love to help you. It's one of my favorite things to help set people up with. How is your private worship happening right now? But then the second application we prior, would be to prioritize family worship. If you read the commentaries, this psalm has sometimes been called the householder's psalm. Not necessarily of a full kingdom, but the ways that especially the heads of households should lead their families. Fathers, are we leading our families in daily worship? Verse 2, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I don't know whether you've been exposed to family worship. We talk about it here and there, but it's a good time to talk about it as any as we think about this psalm. Are you given in your home to where you were leading your family in worship day by day? Where you're opening the Word of God together, where you're praying together, where you are singing together? If you're not conducting daily worship as a family, I want to challenge you. And if you have questions about this, I would love to talk to you about this. Because family worship is, again, it moves, it can't just be endless navel-gazing into our own personal private lives. As we move to that next concentric circle in our households, family worship really is the place of reformation, of renewal and revival in the church. It's the place where we have the opportunity to pass on the true faith to our families. Our family isn't perfect. I need to grow as a husband and a father. My family needs to grow in various ways. Again, we are not perfect. But one of the main strategies we have for seeking progress is daily gathering around the Word of God. That's a vital part of growing together as a family and growing together in the Word of God. And the effect that's had on my children is just tremendous. I'm so grateful for it. So privatize private, or prioritize private worship, prioritize family worship, and finally prioritize public worship. As we think about these extending circles of influence, uh, what we do in public that is most important, more important than anything else in throughout our weeks, is our public worship. This is the pinnacle of our week. You know, this morning I, I talked about the importance of, of church planting. Why? To establish outposts for the kingdom. If you read the story of Abraham, maybe you're going through the McShane Bible reading plan or some other Bible reading plan where you're starting in Genesis, you should note where all he sets up altars and there calls upon the name of the Lord and sometimes returns to those altars. Those are places where the witness of God is established, and that's what church planting is. We want to spread the public worship, the public preaching and teaching of the gospel of the kingdom to more and more harassed and helpless sheep. Everyone needs public worship. This is the need for more churches. This is why we want to plant churches. And tonight, we've given our attention to the fourth commandment. The commandment to the remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. 
You know, if you read the old theologians, they believe that piety, true holiness of the believer, began with how we treat the fourth commandment. They observe that the fourth commandment is the easiest to break. It's the easiest to neglect. It's the first commandment to go by the wayside. And they would point to notorious sinners and they would say, if you ask them, they would say the first thing that went in their life was giving up observance of the fourth commandment. God gives us the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, as a gift. And especially as we start offering these evening services, take advantage of these. It's so hard. It's so hard to keep the fourth commandment if we are not organizing our day around public and private exercises of worship. I'm so thankful you are here, but pray. Pray that more people would come in the mornings as well as in the evenings, that we can worship together. Invite people. If you know people who don't know Jesus, one of the best things you can do for them is not to try to, again, at the periphery of your circles of influence to try to fix their lives. Bring them into public worship where they can be put under the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, like I applied this morning from our text from Matthew, pray. Pray for church vitality. Pray for a real depth of love for Christ and for others. That our love in the gospel of Jesus would overflow into the lives of new people. And then from all these new people into new churches to continue to share that gospel to more and more people. These two texts really do fit together. What we've studied in the morning, we've studied in the evening. The way King Jesus, the great son of this David who wrote this psalm, will build his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is not to begin out there. He doesn't begin with the crowds. He begins by developing and training and strengthening his disciples. It begins in here. It begins with those closest to him. And then from there, he begins to send them out and to do this work of teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and, and healing all their diseases and all their afflictions. He does that uh, especially now today by establishing worship and prayer and preaching to the far ends of the earth. And it's by this that he will build and grow his church so that his church continues to grow. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And the churches will multiply and plant new churches to lead more and more people into worship. This is the mission that Jesus has given us but again, it doesn't start out there. It can't start with big things. It starts in here. So how, once again, coming back to the beginning, how is it in here? How is your private worship? How are you relating to the Lord in the gospel of Jesus that promises forgiveness to those who turn from their sins and look to him? How is it in here and from there? How is that flowing into the rest of your life? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that tonight you would empower us, you would encourage us, you would give us strength in the gospel to return not to our own devices and own strength and try to fix the problems at our peripheries, but that instead you would help us to return to Jesus and to grow in strength by worshiping him, by loving him, by giving all that we have to him that as we look to Jesus and continue to pray, oh, when will you come to me by your spirit? The church of God would be strengthened and people would come to faith and we would grow in our faith and get to enjoy all that we are seeing of your work in our midst. We pray this all for Christ's glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.